Mark 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray. God, we come that with, with empty open hands, acknowledging that we don't have what we need, but we need you. We stand as not self-sustaining, as not self-sufficient, but we are God-dependent people. We gather and we receive your word as a reminder of our need of grace. We need what is offered to us in Jesus. We need a reminder of the truth that you reign, that you are king. And though we have been sin-battered and sin-broken, we have perpetrated treason against you, yet you have loved us to send your Son to die in our stead. The testimony of his blood we continue to need. The testimony of his person, reigning, ruling, interceding, we need. So help us to hear and help us to receive what you would give us. And Father, I now pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth that is not of you would fall to the floor and remain unheard. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will never pass away. So Lord, help us to hear. Would you speak? Father, speak. Your children are listening. Have mercy in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to pause for, from the book of Acts for a stretch. We will finish. Don't fret. If you're fretting, don't fret. Uh, but we're going to spend some time in the Gospel of Mark. And uh, I meant to... Uh, why Mark? Why why the Gospel of Mark? Why now? Um, well, one, I, the, the Lord laid this on my heart months ago, uh, and so it's just simple obedience at this point. But I think that in tumultuous times, which are, which are now on so many different layers, nationally, internationally, politically, personally, possibly, that we are in tumultuous times, that we are in troubled waters, possibly. Uh, And maybe you're feeling that and maybe you're not. But if you're not, then I promise you, your neighbors are. The people around you are feeling the press, the the, the stress and the pressure of where we are. And what, what happens in the context of tumultuous, desperate times is that inevitably people, we are built for good news. We're built for good news. And if we don't know the good news, if we don't know the gospel, we're going to find some substitute for it. We're going to grow susceptible to false gospels if we are not intimately aware of the real gospel. We will grow and are susceptible to false gospels, to false good newses. Newses? 
I don't know what the plural of news is. I guess news is plural. We will fall for false narratives about what is good and what is true and what is beautiful, particularly in stressful, difficult, tumultuous times that we are presently in. Do you track what I'm saying? We're already, people, individuals born into sin, are already prone to worship everything other than God. But what happens in the middle of difficulty, in the middle of stress, whether that be personal or political or national, international, we become more prone to hang our hats on that which ultimately cannot save. To place our hope in the things that cannot bear our hope. Either we, we drop into the false gospel of distraction, which some of you have been longing for for months. Let me just have my Saturdays again to watch football so I can be distracted. And I, again, I, I like football. Gamecock fan, we're 2-0. The season ends today. Undefeated. Because uh, we have defeats in our future. But right now... Very happy. Uh, but, but we kind of say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run to the movies or I'm going to run to Facebook. I'm going to run to Twitter. I'm going to run to Instagram. I'm going I'm to my, run to my, my crafting and my hobbies or to my people. I'm going to run to distraction so that I don't actually have to deal with what's in front of me. That's a false gospel. We think that somehow the pressure of the moment is going to be relieved. The stress surrounding us is going to be lifted If I could just be distracted for a few hours. I'm not knocking entertainment, but when it plants its roots in our lives in such a way as to be the diversion by which we don't have to actually deal with problem, then it becomes an idol. But maybe a stronger false gospel that we're prone to is this idea of of political leverage and political power, if we simply have the right people and the right positions of earthly power, then we will be delivered and saved in a sense. And again, um, don't get me started. I'm not that political of a guy, but I've gotten so. Uh, anyways, it's ridiculous. <laughs> but if we are putting our hope there, Saying if we had just re-elected the last guy, or if we would just have our will with this guy, or with the next guy, or with our next mayor, or governor, or senate, whatever it is. If that's our hope, dear ones, then we don't have any. The pressure that surmounts against us when we feel... As that video said, we feel the earth moving beneath our feet. It makes us susceptible. If we are not well acquainted in often visiting the good news of the gospel of Jesus, which is the only true, authentic, enduring good news. If we are not planting our feet there consistently, repeatedly, intimately, then we will be distracted from ultimate true good news. 
We will be susceptible to the various false gospels that this world is surrounding us with because you're made for good news. You're made for good news because you know that this world and you also in it are somehow not as it ought to be. That we are impacted, infected, and perpetrating sin. And we know, therefore, we're, built, we're desperately needy for good news. Whether it's to get healthier or to not lose our hair. been thinking about that a lot. We, I, I told Sarah Beth right here, I've got this. You, like you get one of those volumizing uh, shampoos and it doesn't, it doesn't volumize. Some of y'all are like, shut up. That day has passed for many of you. I still have some hope, okay? All right? Not there yet. My, kid, my kids are making me get there. Oh, anyways. Maybe it's to look better or to stay younger or stay healthier. Maybe it's, the, what, what, maybe it's to have a better job, a better retirement. What, but there's, there's a multitude of lists. I can't give you everything that you might possibly fall into. Some crazy conspiracy theory. That somehow if we unravel the... I don't even want to get into it. If we somehow unravel the mess of, of COVID and what the, what the government's really up to, then we'll, we'll figure it's, it will somehow arrive at some form of salvation. It's, it's foolish. But you see the debates raging among Jesus' people. Not just what we're arguing about. Not just what we're saying, but our, but our attitudes. It betrays hearts that aren't intimately aware of the gospel of Jesus. Or at least hearts that are so quick to forget it. That God so loved, He has loved the world in this way that He gave His only begotten Son. His one and only Son. So that whoever trusts in Him should not perish but have everlasting life we're coming to the gospel of mark because we need we need the gospel we need the gospel not just the people out there not just the presidents and the vice presidents not just the senators and the congress people all the people that you say you need jesus well guess what friend you need jesus just as much I need Jesus just as much. And we need, if we are going to be Jesus' hands, feet, and light in a broken world that more and more seems to be showcasing its brokenness, then we have to plunge deeply into the good news of Jesus and become intimately aware because someone once said the best way to spot a counterfeit is to, is to study an authentic the best way to spot a counterfeit is to become well acquainted with the authentic. If you're going to spot the false gospels, not just of the world out there, but the ones that you're prone to, then we have to press into the gospel as revealed to us in Scripture and in Jesus. The gospel of Mark is probably, probably the first gospel written. Of the four Gospels, there's anybody can do it? Thank you. There's no, no others, okay? Gospel of Thomas is not a Gospel. Gospel of Peter or of 
Judith or whoever else. All right, they're not gospels. Don't get, don't fall into the history channel trap. <clears throat> so that Mark is probably the first one written. He's probably probably writes from 65 AD through 68, 69, somewhere in the latter half of the 60s AD. So we're talking a, a little bit, a little over 30 years from Jesus's death and resurrection. Mark writes his gospel. He, we, we kind of center on that date because he's writing uh, at the, the eyewitness account of the apostle Peter, probably in Rome. Uh, but we know that Peter is martyred. He's killed late 60s AD, probably around 68, 67, 68 AD. And Mark is writing off of his eyewitness testimony so he's either writing at just before Peter's death or just after Peter's death. So that's why we kind of place that date there. Peter is martyred under Emperor Nero, who is notorious, infamous in history for his persecution of Christians. He wasn't the only Roman emperor who persecuted Christians on a, on a, on a grand scale, uh, but he did so with utmost flamboyance, emphasis on flame, right? There was a, the great story of, uh, he, that he would light his dinner parties in his garden with, with burning Christians on stakes. That he was notorious, in, not just in killing Christians, but in doing so in grotesque fashion. But Peter is, uh, they, church, tradi- church tradition holds that he was crucified upside down. Um, and Mark writes off of his testimony. Mark here is the John Mark. If you remember last week in, uh, in Acts chapter 12, where they go to, they, they, Peter went to, his, to Mark's mom's house when he got out of prison there. Uh, so John Mark is the same John Mark who accompanied Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, who bailed halfway through and then created a great fissure, a great fight between Barnabas and Paul later so that they went their different ways. Barnabas wanted to bring John Mark along. Paul said, no, he abandoned us once. Well, I'm not doing that again. Uh, but by the end of, by, toward the end of Paul's life, he had a much better uh, pers- view, perspective of John Mark so that by the end of some of his letters, you see John Mark there spoken of in, in good terms. I just want to give you a little bit of an intro here. Uh, it's the shortest of our Gospels by chapter and word length. Uh, and the, it is probably a source from which some of the other Gospel writers, particularly Matthew and Luke, probably use Mark's Gospel for part of their Gospel. Some of their material, particularly Luke, the Gospel writer who collects, the great historian who collects sources and puts them together. He uses Mark's Gospel. That shouldn't trouble you overly. Uh, Jesus is, and you might, you might expect this, but in ways that are distinct from the other Gospels, Jesus is the explicit subject of Mark's Gospel. And what I mean by that, that there's only two passages in all of the 16 chapters, there are only two passages that don't speak to what Jesus is either doing or saying. Only two passages. The first is here in chapter 1 and verses 2 through 8 that are talking about John the Baptist. And the other is in chapter 6 that's also talking about John the Baptist. Every other passage in Mark's gospel is somehow referencing Jesus' work, person, teaching. 
It is a Jesus-saturated book. And so for us who need the Jesus reminder, I figure it was a good place to be. Not that the other Gospels aren't Jesus-saturated, but that this one is all about Jesus. And Mark moves at a remarkable clip. He is always moving. He, he uses words like immediately and again and and. He, he's always going, going, going. He's moving us through the account of Jesus. There are three themes that I want you to remember. And they show up in our verse today. That these themes are divine authority. Authority, power, sovereignty. This, this will show up particularly in chapter 2. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. I tell this man, take up your pallet and walk. Divine authority. Jesus as the suffering servant of God. That even though Mark writes to predominantly Roman Christians... So he's not using all of the Old Testament references and quotes that, I mean, he uses some as he does in the very, very verse two of chapter one. But he doesn't use them to the extent that Matthew does or even Luke. But Mark, he's writing to Roman Christians who are under persecution. And so he uses the Old Testament lightly, but he is connecting the dots between the suffering servant in Isaiah All of those servant songs, he's connecting the dots between that servant, suffering servant, and Jesus. Okay? So he's the suffering servant of God. And then Jesus as the Son of God. Divine authority, suffering servant of God, and Jesus as the Son of God. When we look at verse 1, which I would encourage you to do right now, and I know this is kind of a different sermon, and maybe you're... You wish it were another kind of sermon, Um, but you need to know these things. One, because the fact that Mark is writing to Christians who are predominantly, uh, predominantly to Christians who are in a, a pagan culture, a pagan society, means that more and more Mark is writing to a society and a culture that's very similar to ours. And so he's writing to Christians so that they will know the truth. They would believe upon Jesus. And he's also writing so that people who don't yet know Jesus will know him. The beginning. Mark is one of four books in the Bible that begins with beginning. Can you guess any of the others? Genesis. In the beginning. John, the other one's hard, harder. We're less familiar with it. Mm -mm. Old Testament prophet, baby prophet. Nope. Good try. Hosea. So you uh, Genesis, Hosea, Mark and John all begin with beginning. And it's significant. The use of beginning here isn't just like a it's the beginning in time, but it's the beginning in principle. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that with the with the dawn or the advent of Jesus for Mark is so significant that he should use very similar to John, but that he should use the same terminology as Genesis 1 1 because Jesus's advent, Jesus's arrival is the beginning of new creation. 
Jesus' arrival is the advent is the beginning of new creation. James Edwards, a, a commentator, he says, For Mark, the introduction of Jesus is no less momentous than the creation of the world. For in Jesus, a new creation is at hand. New creation is at hand. So that Jesus' arrival is the arrival of light in the darkness. It's the arrival of the one who is going to roll up all of the effects of sin and Satan and the fall. And that this is the beginning of the new heavens and the new earth. And it's the beginning of what has begun also in you. Where Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, that the God who said, let, let light shine in the darkness, has so shone in your hearts the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So that the work of God in you, Christian, if you are a born-again, blood-bought, believing Christian this morning, that the work that, is, that God has done in you is of the same caliber, is of the same significance, of the same size and scale as what he did when he said, let there be light. The work that he has done and what he will do in those who have yet to believe. There is a beginning to my Christian life. There was a beginning to your Christian life. But your beginning is not the beginning of the gospel. Your beginning, born again as a new believer in Jesus Christ, your beginning is a consequence of this beginning. You coming to faith in Jesus is a consequence of Jesus' arrival, Jesus' obedience to the Father. So, the beginning Beginning in principle, beginning in time, but beginning in significance. Jesus' arrival is the beginning of the gospel. Jesus is, not just his arrival, but Jesus. There is no gospel, there is no good news without Jesus. There is no good news without Jesus. Secondly, the gospel Gospel, as I probably, you might have already picked up on, it means good news. The beginning of the good news of God. This is God's good news for a sin-darkened, sin-broken world. And as he's about to quote from, he quotes from Malachi and then he quotes from Isaiah... He's taking the idea of the good news that's laid out primarily in Isaiah and he begins to apply it or view it through the lens of Jesus. So let me take you two places in Isaiah. Isaiah 52 verse 7. And these are going to be familiar, I would, I would hope. Uh, Isaiah 52, chapter 52 verse 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the herald who proclaims peace, who brings news of good things, who brings good news, who proclaims salvation, who says it to Zion, your God reigns. The, the Old Testament is full of the gospel. 
It's full of the gospel in promise and in type and in shadow, but it links, as the New Testament gospel writers do, it always links God's good news to God's kingly reign, that he is ruling, enthroned, and sovereign over all. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the herald, the one who speaks out salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. If there's no gospel without Jesus, there's no gospel without Jesus the King. If there's no gospel without Jesus, then there's no gospel without Jesus the King. If if we simply think about the gospel in terms that don't include Jesus as king, then we are looking at a truncated, chopped off, abbreviated gospel. Over and over again, the gospel in the gospels is primarily the gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom of the king who comes to reign. The beginning of the gospel If Mark is the first gospel writer, which we're assuming, if Mark is the first gospel writer, then he is the inventor of gospel literature. He's the one who invents gospel as describing Jesus's life and death and resurrection. He uses the word gospel eight times in his gospel compared to four times in Matthew, zero times in Luke and zero times in John. He is a gospel-saturated writer, but he is pointing us to the good news that God reigns. What does that look like? Isaiah 61, second place in Isaiah. Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and freedom to the prisoners. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance. To comfort all who mourn. To provide for those who mourn in Zion. To give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. Festive oil instead of mourning. And splendid clothes instead of despair. And they will be called righteous trees. Planted by the Lord to glorify Him. So that the kingly work of God and this gospel that he's coming, it it is given to the poor. Now, it's not just economically poor, but when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who acknowledge a broken and contrite heart, the Lord does not despise. That our poverty before God is a spiritual poverty. And if you don't acknowledge and live into that, then the gospel will never be good news to you because you will continue to believe the lie that you are enough. The gospel is the gospel of the poor. Yes, for those who are poor economically, but it's also the gospel of those who are rich who acknowledge their spiritual poverty, that we are spiritually bankrupt before God, that we have nothing to offer Him Except the sin, as Jonathan Edwards says, that makes our sin, I mean our salvation, necessary. So he brings good news to the poor. He's coming to lift up the brokenhearted, liberate the captives, free the prisoners, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, that he is 
This is Jesus. This is the Messiah. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus. Jesus' name means Yahweh saves. The Lord saves. Matthew 1.21 says, She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. It's one of the first places in the Bible where we have Jesus linked with Yahweh. If Jesus' name means Yahweh saves, and the gospel writer there in Matthew says, and he, that is Jesus, will save his people from their sins. Yahweh saves, Yahweh's saving work. The Lord of the Old Testament is Jesus of the New Testament. He is the one who saves his people, and he is the Christ, he is the Messiah. In the Old Testament, there were three types of individuals that would be anointed. And that's what this term means. Anointed one. Prophets were anointed. Priests were anointed. And kings were anointed. And Jesus serves in all three capacities for us. He is our prophet who gives us the the truth, who speaks the word of God to us. He is our priest who has paid for us, who has sacrificed himself and continues to intercede for us. And he is our king who rules us, who reigns over us. He is our prophet, our priest, and our king. And he is the anointed savior. But not only is Jesus the Christ, which in the Old Testament could very well be a kingly human king. But he is also the son of God. I think... I think that Mark uses that term more than any other gospel writer. Usually Jesus is the son of man in the other gospels, but here he is the son of God. And so with the term title, which, right, Jesus Christ, Christ is not his last name. Okay, it's a title. Christ Jesus, Messiah Jesus. You have a meeting of his person. You begin to see that he is truly man and he is truly God. And because of who he is, because of his person, truly man and truly God, 100% God, 100% man, because of who he is, his work and his teaching matter and are effective for salvation. So to save yourself, which you can't do. But to save yourself from false gospels, you must come to the true gospel, which is centered on Jesus' work and person, or his person and his work. If Jesus is simply a man, then his death on the cross does not bear the same significance. If Jesus is simply a man, then you have to look at him as a lunatic rather than Lord, as C.S. Lewis said. Because he claims that he and the Father are one. He is the Son of God. And he did not become the Son of God. He has always been the Son of God. God the Son is the second person of the Trinity. Jesus does not become the Son at his baptism. 
He does not become the son at any other point in his life, but he has always been the son. So the beginning of the gospel is the son. The beginning of the gospel is before time and space began. If Jesus was delivered up, as Peter says in the book of Acts, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. As Revelation says, he was crucified before the foundation of the world. Then the son with the spirit came into covenant with the father to accomplish our salvation. So the salvation, the rescue, the deliverance from troubled, tumultuous times that you need Dear ones, it has to be eternal if it's going to be everlasting. If it's going to actually rescue you, stop looking at the fleeting powers of today. Stop looking at everything this world tells you to look at. Stop finding your identity in things and people other than Jesus. Stop trying to distract your way out of pain, out of mourning, out of fear, and out of suffering. You can't distract yourself out of it. But come to Christ. Stop looking at the false idols of this world, whether they be political or popular, whether they be the slogans of Hollywood or of New York City or of Columbia, South Carolina, None of those things can save you. None of those things are the good news that you are looking for, that you are built for. The good news that you are built for is this gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So I would encourage you as we press into Mark's gospel, read it. Read it. I know you're already reading, hopefully, Lord willing. You're hopefully still reading our McShane reading plan. But read the Gospel of Mark and ask the Lord, one, are there there any false gospels that I'm believing? False gospel equals idol. And it needs to be repented of, confessed to the Lord and repented of. Secondly, I want you to ask, who needs to hear about this gospel? Who is it that I know is floundering in a world of false gospels. Who needs to hear it? And Lord, help me to share it. Dear one, if that is you today, where you are all of a sudden aware, you have been brought to awareness by God's Holy Spirit today that you have been trusting in anything and everything except for Jesus. You've been trusting in the stability of America. You've been trusting in the stability of the American dollar for your retirement. You've been trusting in the stability of your home and of your family and of your work. And all of those things feel, or some of those things feel, less stable than they did yesterday or two weeks ago or a month ago or 20 years ago. I would encourage you to come plant your feet on the rock of Christ. To trust in him. For he is the rock. He is our stronghold and our strength who will endure 
through life's storms and He will hold you. But you must leave your sin, leave all those false trusts and believe upon Jesus who was crucified for you, who who was raised for you so that you could have new life. If you're a Christian today, you identify that you have trusted in the Lord by His grace only, that you've repented of your sins by His grace only. You're seeking to live for Jesus and you know, you know you've been distracted. You know you've, you've your, your trust, which once was singularly set on Jesus, has bled away to these other things. I would encourage you, ask for the Lord to renew your trust in Christ, in Christ alone. Repent of all that. I'm not saying you, don't, you shouldn't care about it. Put it in its place and plant your feet on Jesus and Jesus alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the gospel of the kingdom. We thank you for the gospel of Christ, truly man and truly God, who was crucified according to the scriptures, who was dead and buried, and who was raised according to the scriptures. We look to you, Lord, as the one who has defeated sin, Satan, and death. Would you create in us a trust, a leaning upon you and you alone? Lord, would you rescue us from the false gospels and the idols that we are prone to trust? Take all of that away that we might just have Christ. Lord, if there are some here or who might hear this who don't know you and they know they are longing for good news but what they have found so far isn't it. Would you open their eyes to the love of the Savior to your love your mercy and to your grace and to your purpose and to your future. Would you open their eyes to Jesus that they might trust and follow. We thank you, O Lord, again in Christ's name. Amen.